the compassion that is learned in the human realm helps us grow as a human being. But if we are practicing compassion with the motivation of a transcendent process of evolutionary development, then we are inviting compassion energies beyond the scope of our own capacity. These are the things that we need to know. Greetings, I'm Nalwan Sufa, and I'd like to welcome you to the premiere episode of The Wisdom of Compassion, a podcast presented by White Conch Dharma Center. If you've been following us on social media, then you are well aware of the exciting program we have today. Domo Geshe Rinche, the spiritual director of White Conch, will be answering a selection of questions you've been sending us for the past week. So let's get right to it. On behalf of myself and all the people who submitted questions, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, Rinpoche, the idea behind this podcast was to provide an exploration of compassion. And before we discuss the questions our listeners submitted, can you share with us how you see compassion? How I see compassion actually doesn't matter very much that uh, I'm more interested in how others see compassion, where they are in their compassion snapshot, so to speak, uh, where they are in their, uh, in their um, evolutionary progress. You know, we think, we might think that compassion uh, is something that has to do with uh, human development and enrichment of human life. And I can't say no, but there is something which is the, the lower end of a higher functioning lifestyle and higher functioning being, I'm going to say, beyond the human realm, of which compassion is the unspoken clarification of energy. Eh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if I can, if I can say that exactly. Eh that um, the compassion that is learned in the human realm helps us grow as a human being. But if we are practicing compassion with the motivation of a transcendent process of evolutionary development, then we are inviting compassion energies beyond the scope of our own capacity. These are the things that we need to know. Otherwise, compassion simply has a kind of sentimental tone to it. It sounds like somebody who's uh, easygoing, someone who doesn't, uh, doesn't really care much whether, you, whether they uh, go here or go there, as long as everyone else is happy with that. That is not the transcendent form of compassion that we are looking for. That certainly, from a human viewpoint, that practice of patience and equanimity and uh, kindness uh, could all be considered part of compassion. But, uh, you know, in my uh, teachings that I emphasize two main points, and these two main points have nothing to do with me, that these are actually the reason why you were born. This is the reason why you're here on earth, that Number one, there are two, only two lessons, two great lessons that you need to learn and you need to graduate from. The first one 
is learning the true nature of compassion. And the second one is how to get along with others. So during this series, I would like to consider that our first great lesson is what we are going to be focusing on. And so I'd like to have the first question. Thank you, Rinpoche. Our first question comes via Facebook from Yeshe Uzer, John Rogers, in Germany. He asks, how do we remain compassionate in the face of terrorism? You know, this world uh, has never been a really, really nice place. Uh, if you read history, if you read about the terrible things that individuals have done or that countries have done to other countries or even within their own country, that you could definitely say that there has never been a time in history when terrorism, what we call terrorism, has not been uh, around and has not been actively used. That the prime force of terrorism, the prime reason of terrorism is to create fear. When heightened media awareness came into focus, and it's still happening, it's still growing with social media, as well as websites and people's blogs, as well as Twittering, those people who are on the ground during a terrorist attack. That terrorism, no matter where it's happening in the world, it feels as though it's happening to us because we are so connected by the internet to what's happening. In other words, there is an immediacy to terrorism. We are there while it's happening. We're there reading the experiences of the people. We see the pictures, we see the videos. It is horrifying in ways that were not available to us even 10 or 15 years ago. That the acts of terrorism that went on before were hidden from us and they were very specific to a group of people they want to control. So this is one important uh, aspect. Terrorism has become a big business. One of the first things they did was take over the oil fields and start selling oil. So it's a homegrown capitalist terrorism that, is, that cares nothing, cares nothing for the human rights for the welfare of others, they are only caring about themselves. And of course, with the huge amount of discussion that's gone on regarding the motivations of people as well as the individuals who are attracted to becoming terrorists. So the real question is, this is first of all assuming that we have a lot of compassion, okay? If we had a lot of compassion, this question is a non-issue. So we have to say, what do we do when we're learning how to have compassion and something like this gets in the way of our practice of compassion? I think that's a better question. Huh? So this is very bad because we have been interrupted in our compassion practice that we needed so badly. Not only did we need it so badly, we're not getting younger. That uh, my dear friend who uh, who said this question, he has like a snow on the mountain, okay? You know what I mean? A lot of gray hair. So we don't have a lot of time. I also have a lot of snow on the mountain. Huh? We don't have a lot of time. 
uh, to finish our compassion practice and get on to the wisdom aspect of compassion. We want to have an uninterrupted practice of compassion. So we have to say, is terrorism in our neighborhood? Is terrorism in our neighborhood? Are we directly affected by terrorism or do we have a little bit of space between ourselves and the actual acts of terrorism? And we have to say that there are actually people who are being directly affected by terrorist acts, particularly in Nigeria, uh, in Syria, particularly in Lebanon and other places. So we can say that these are the people who really deserve our compassion, all right? We don't know them yet, although they are coming. They're coming to America. They're coming to Canada. They're coming to Germany. And we need to have a way to retain our compassionate nature with those who are the most victimized, okay? While we are doing that, while our heart is open to them, it's very difficult to be afraid because we're not thinking about ourselves. That when we ourselves become afraid, that what you should do is help someone else. You should help someone else. That will definitely stop your fear. And particularly uh, for John, is working directly with refugees in Germany where he lives and on a daily basis helping the people who are the ones who we want to embrace. So the other part of this question is, how do we work with people who are the victims of terrorism? How do we work with them without becoming infected by their fear? And this is where whatever amount of wisdom that we have regarding the nature of samsara, regarding the nature, regarding the actual nature of how things and people are alive, which is empty. It's actually empty of all of the, all of the terror. It's actually empty of reality. It's empty of reality. So if we have become, if we're practicing, if we're practicing Buddhism, that we have the right, the right, to view the situation as being part of the samsaric way of life and part of a phenomena which is essenceless in its deeper nature. Essenceless. It has, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And so at the same time, this is what bodhisattvas do, at the same time, you scoop up people and try to help them, give them food, give them whatever they need so that they can back, get back on their feet. And once they're back on their feet, they will also produce a great deal of benefit for other survivors. They will help each other. We can't help people so much that we make them helpless. What we want to do is help them enough so that they become helpful. So this, of course, not the whole answer. It's only a little bit of discussion here. Thank you, Rimshay. That's, that's an interesting point about helping others help themselves and not pushing beyond that. 
And perhaps that segues into our next question, which comes from Jay Sheckley in Berkeley, California. Jay asks, are there limits to compassion? Oh, this is such a good question. That uh, sometimes a very short question actually is the most complicated question, but it brings up a number of different subjects. Say, say the question again. I want to understand clearly. The question was, are there limits to compassion? Yes, there are limits to compassion. And no, there are not limits to compassion. Here we are at Lotus Lake Buddhist Center in central Wisconsin, which if you don't know, is extremely flat, okay? So from the view, we're ta I'm talking to you from my cottage here, and the view across our field, I can see our neighbor's barn, okay? So this is my view. This is my view. It's about, what, 300 feet, 500 feet, whatever. So I could say, I could say uh, that uh, my view is limited. My view is limited. However, if we were uh, on a mountain, if we were on a mountain, we can see extremely high. Uh, the woman who wrote America the Beautiful, as I recall, wrote it on the Cog Railway going up to the top of Pikes Peak, which was a very, very popular in the 1800s, hmm? like one of the primed tourist destinations. I don't know if you knew that. She could see, at one point, you could see across four states, and the, the air was very clear, and she would, in her mind, from sea to shining sea, I think it said in the, in the words. Huh? And so we have a heightened sense of the, the possibility of the spectrum of our view, the higher our consciousness, okay, the higher our consciousness rises, that we can even be in our physical body and our consciousness could have a broad spectrum view of life and you are not involved in the comings and goings. You're a little bit distant because you're on the top of the mountain. And so automatically the mind calms down the broader the view. Did you know that? That what we look for in meditation is to achieve a kind of inner calm where we can depart from the farmer in his field or from someone who slams the door in anger, that we can't see that. We're not involved in that. That we are distancing our consciousness in order to heal it enough to come back to the nuts and bolts of daily life and dig in the ground as a farmer or to chastise the child who just slammed the door, that it is possible in the spectrum of compassion that we can only do that if we have relief from the nuts and bolts of the small view. So the question is, does compassion have a limit? Compassion can be anything you say it is. Even compassion, where you are giving, for example, let's say you sponsor a meal for some homeless person, and you pat yourself on the head. You say, oh, this is a very compassionate. I'm such a good person. I like, really like myself. This is good. This is good. You've had an opportunity to display your good qualities. 
And so in this way, in this way, our everyday life is always displaying your qualities, good, bad, or indifferent. The good ones and the ones that are directed toward the benefit of others can be called compassion. However, when we retreat from the uh, everyday details that we are capable of having an experience of compassion which has nothing to do with other people. This is very important, that other people are responsible for their own welfare. That as I am responsible, I don't mean for their own welfare, for their own being, for the improvement of their own being. However, that means that I, I am responsible for the improvement of my being. Nobody's going to come along and compassionately improve my being. Not possible. And so we need to go internal and we need to find out who am I really? Who am I really? And then we need to see the qualities of that individual, that individual still, and what kinds of thinking are produced at that level of our being. And so these are the things which need to become expanded internally in order to experience the fullness of our being. You cannot have the fullness of your being as an individual, as a being of light, we say, unless you have a special etheric chemical, I'm going to call it, which is coming from deep, deep within, from perfection itself, from Buddha-level being, through the bodhisattva-level beings who are the workers, the worker bees of the Buddha-level beings, and the Buddhas are emanated from perfection, that that is the actual care, that's the juice, the juiciness of the compassion. We want to be the one where it's exuding into me, into me. I was going to say us, but I meant me. Is that I want to experience, I want to experience that compassion. I want to experience that form of compassion which does not require an object, that this is the healing, this is the healing of the energy of this world. It's not for any particular person. It's not about being sad. It's not about being mad. It's not, it's not about being afraid. It's actually, it's actually the courage of the universe. That's a wonderful image, the courage of the universe. Thank you, Rimshade. For our next question, Alberto Troisi from Italy is wondering, why with some people is it so difficult to feel true compassion during daily normal life and it becomes natural when you're at risk of losing them? Very interesting question. Very interesting question. You know, uh, one of the really sad parts of human life is that uh, people will leave us. People will leave us. Sometimes they get angry and they leave us. I only recently heard about, uh, 
oh, what do they call this? There's a certain name for it where they just cut you off and never never talk to you again. Do you know what that's called? No? Gaslighting. It's called gaslighting. I think I've got the right word. Gaslighting. And this is where someone that you knew well, even people you were intimate with, they just turn around and walk away and pretend like you never existed. This is the... This is, this is so horrible for the person who was left behind because they are still holding them in what I call their energetic uh, address book, their energetic address book. And I usually point to just above my heart, like on my left shoulder. I don't know why, but it feels like that's where it is. And uh, for those that we are deeply connected to, that we exchange a bit of ourselves with each other. It's energy, but it's a kind of living energy. And upon that living energy, we apply everything that we know about them. So they're there, but eventually it becomes our version of who they are. They don't actually get to be them. However, it has become knitted to your energetic body. This is why when someone passes away, I'm not, not just distancing, or when someone passes away, that energetic person that's them in you is literally ripped away. And many people during the grieving, it almost makes me cry because I certainly have grieved, feel that energetic being just ripped away without any healing balm coming back. It's like an inept surgery. And so we know from previous losses, there's nobody, nobody around that hasn't had any loss. And we know how much it hurts. And so the next go around, the next go around, that we're always afraid, a little bit afraid, that we're going to lose them. However, when they come right in front of our face and they talk bad or they're doing things that we don't approve of, we could, that, that all of this love and this, this potential loss, where is it? It's gone. It doesn't exist because we're so involved in our discourse with ourself regarding what this person is doing. Of course, they really could be behaving badly, but it's, it's not like compassion. I'm going to say that this is really what we call skillful means, skillful means. So whether that person is bad or whether that person is good, we think about, we think about the level of intimacy and the level of connection that we have. For example, someone comes up to you on the street and says, I don't like you, you're a bad person. You go, what do I care? You, you don't have anything to do with me. Huh? But when someone who is bad to you, who you have an intimate connection to, they wound you right in the place where they exist in you. And so that hurts. And many times when it hurts, that makes you angry. So you can be more angry at someone you're intimate with than you would with a stranger. 
because it hurts you personally in your energetic being, all right? That's where you really hurt, all right? And then maybe the next day you think, oh, they, maybe they had a heart attack or they fell ill or that, uh, that uh, or they say, now I don't want to be around you, I'm going to leave you. And suddenly the whole thing shifts and you think, hey, wait a minute, you can't rip that away from me. And so the question is, how do we be compassionate? Read, read me the question again. The question was, why with some people is it so difficult to feel true compassion during daily normal life and it becomes natural when you are at risk of losing them? Yes, just so, just what I've been saying, that we have, that we have a, an obligation to become as skillful as possible during our lifetime. And I was talking earlier about the two great lessons. Number one is to learn the true nature of compassion. However, this particular question has to, as is regarding how do I get along with others? These are vast questions. Mostly they are connected. If you're not involved in either one or the other of these great lessons, then your life, your life is wasted. Your life is, you're wasting your life. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing those things. Huh? So read, uh, read and listen to teachings. Relax, relax, relax. Find something, find the commonalities with that person that you can agree on. That some of the most successful people who work with, for example, gangs, I mean, there's nothing that could be worse than someone who is a gang member or someone who's extremely violent. People who are really successful will find something, some kind of commonality, and you work from your commonalities and not from your differences, I think. Thank you, Rinpoche. You mentioned reading and listening to teachings, and I'm wondering if there might be a third one here. Lamo Ingrick from Toronto, Canada, asks via Facebook, should I chant a daily mantra for compassion? Absolutely, absolutely. Among the various aspects of Buddhahood, certain qualities are attributed in abundance with one or another deity. Although the, the, the Buddha of compassion, Chen Rezi, has just as much wisdom as Manjushri, the Buddha of wisdom, and the Buddha of Wisdom has just as much compassion as Chen Rezi, as well as all of the other Buddha-level beings, that we feel as though Chen Rezi, Buddha of Compassion, uh, has a program, we're going to say, of special emphasis on developing compassion. So actually the Buddha of the, the mantra of compassion is, we could say, the national mantra of Tibet. That to people, whether they're in their stores and putting away things on the shelf or sweeping the house or rocking a baby, that the mantra is Om Mane Pemi Hum. Om Mane Pemi Hum. Om Mane Pemi Hum. Now, many people have heard commentaries on, oh, this word means this and this means that, and this is about the lotus, and uh, it's not like that. That when you are chanting, the mantra of compassion, Chen Rezi, Om Mani Pemi Hum, 
you are literally inviting Chen Rei Zi, Buddha of Compassion, to be here now, to be in your world. You know, if we think, if we think, oh, I'm going to chant for someone else, I'm going to chant for my neighbor, and this is good, this is good. However, you are the first source, you're the source as well as the first recipient of this mantra. And so when you, when you, uh, chanting, Om Mani Pemi Hum, Om Mani Pemi Hum, Om Mani Pemi Hum. It's on your lips, it's in your mind, it's in your heart, and you be the recipient of that because you are the one who needs to continue to develop compassion. Thank you, Rinpoche. We have an email from Betty Kramer in Madison, Wisconsin, asking, you have taught that beings who have previously attained enlightenment must reawaken in each subsequent lifetime. Is it also true that if one had cultivated various levels of compassion in one's mind previously, that one's compassion must be reactivated in each lifetime? Or does compassion become a part of one's nature that is carried over and then further cultivated if all goes well? This, again, the answer is both yes and no. Yes, in that uh, it must be reactivated in each lifetime because you are not reincarnated in accordance with your best qualities. Sorry about that. You are reincarnated in accordance with your worst qualities. Why? Because that's the thing you need to learn. You didn't need to learn all of those things that you already got in some previous lifetime. And so you are presently the worst version of yourself, okay? And in that way, you need to strongly try to remember who you are. Now, who that is is accordance to your nature. And you need to strongly reawaken compassion. But first, everyone begins in this life, whether they are Buddha-level beings or bodhisattvas, that you first begin by arising bodhicitta, arising bodhicitta, arising compassion, rather than engaging bodhicitta. There are two forms, okay? Maybe sometime we'll talk about that. And so what you begin with is seeing a neighbor, a friend, a teacher, someone that you consider to really have a lot of good qualities. And you think, I would like to possess those qualities myself. Because I really admire, I admire their qualities. I want to be like that, okay? This is same, this human way that, uh, that even someone who's an ice skater, you know, a speed skater, that you see someone speed skating, oh, I wish I could speed skate like they do. I wish I could play tennis like they do. I wish I could play football. I wish I could sing like that, okay? So you're already familiar with that dynamic. What we need to do is to hone our direction of our appreciation towards something which is actually powerfully transformative instead of something that will help our status or money, etc. Huh. And so, yes, we need to awaken it in each lifetime. So the way it's not necessary is because someone who has developed, let's say bodhicitta, let's, just not, let's not just say compassion, let's just say someone who had really attained enlightenment in some previous lifetime, and here they are back again honing their worst qualities that they have 
all of their good qualities, which call to them, sort of like distant voices, whether we hear them or not, whether we listen to them or not, is totally up to us. But when we begin to meditate, we can start to hear our own better qualities inside that are talking to us. And so we could say that our own good qualities developed from a previous lifetime are our actual allies in the accomplishment of greater compassion. Thank you, Rimshe. I'm pleased to say that there was such an enthusiastic response to our request for questions that we couldn't possibly answer them all in one episode. So if you didn't hear your question today, stay tuned for our future Q&A episodes to see when yours will be answered. Our final question for the day comes from Tenzin Pema from South Africa via Facebook. When or how is compassion married with wisdom? For example, does one stop another in their tracks and correct them when one witnesses blatant contempt for others? Or does one smile patiently and learn that this is not the way to treat others and silently give the situation the opposite it needs? You know, we really can't help being ourselves, you know? In, uh, in difficult situations, we really show our qualities, we really, whether that's good or not, we really show who we are. We just can't help it. We just burst out. I have to tell you a story. A number of years ago, when I hadn't been here that long, I lived in California, and I was at a stoplight on a back street someplace in Santa Rosa, and I was looking for an address, and I stopped there, and I didn't realize that there was someone behind me, okay, like it doesn't happen very often. And so finally this, uh, this person honked their horn angrily, and I pulled out and made a left, and I sat at the side of the, on the street there. And as this person came by me, he rolled down his window on my side, and, you know, that faced me, and he, I don't even remember what he said, that he was, uh, you know, shouting at me and, you know, really using, I think, a lot of swear words, but I, I don't really hang on to it, so I don't really know. And, uh, uh, and so uh, I, I thought, well, his, his energy is really high, and I thought, I've got to say something. And I, I, Be kind, I shouted at him. And he may have said something else, I don't remember. And he gunned his car down the street. Well, sadly for him, it was a dead-end street. And so I'm still sitting there in my car, and he had to make a U-turn, what they call a cul-de-sac U-turn, and he had to come right by me again. And I just looked at him like that. So I felt, uh, I felt uh, quite okay. I felt quite okay. Uh, even though he was behaving badly, he was a stranger, and maybe I had some fault in it because I wasn't paying enough attention to, uh, to my driving. But uh, my main point is that however you're responding is where you're at, okay? So if you try to step outside your own nature to respond to someone in a way you think you should respond, that it does, usually doesn't come out well. You may up be upsetting yourself or later regret that you said something that isn't part of your nature. So at all times, ideally at all times, 
that we respond to whatever situation we're in in accordance with our own nature. And if that isn't good enough, if that's causing you trouble, if your nature means to give them a pop in the nose, then you better work on your behavior and your qualities because you are there, you are there as half of an equation that can be either healing or it can be destructive. So if you are responsible for the behavior of another, for example, a child, an employee, or someone who is representing you, for example, that you have the perfect right to call them on their bad behavior, to insist that they do not do that again, to fire them, maybe spank them, I don't know. You know? <laughs> I don't think they spank people anymore. But anyway, that you have a responsibility to mold their character. This is what parents are responsible for. Now, how you go about that is, again, in accordance with your nature. Some parents just make themselves crazy because they're not like that. They're actually very calm and, and gentle and careful people, but they think that you're supp they're supposed to shout. And then they wind up having to take medicine because they're always <laughs> upset. And it stirs the situation. When you are interacting with anyone, that you are sending out energetic waves that are either healing or they are exacerbating the situation, that you have to know the difference. And so we have to come back to knowing ourselves. What kind of person am I? How would I react in different kinds of situations? And that would be your own wisdom alive in any communication that you have with others. Because this question is really more about everyday life rather than ultimate wisdom, that we are doing the best that we can. Even the bodhisattvas are doing the best that they can. Within the parameters of the possibilities, the bodhisattvas will improve or try to change to the better a situation. This is not a perfect world and very difficult, very difficult to get large numbers of people on the wisdom wagon. So be more skillful. If you're bothered by what they're, what they're doing, you have to work on your own skillful means, your own skillful means. So I tell you a story of the Buddha. Long time ago, during the Buddha's lifetime, <laughs> 2,600 years ago, that a man came in front of the Buddha, and he was just shouting and yelling and saying terrible things, swearing and, and uh, just horrible things, saying to the Buddha. And the Buddha said nothing. And the, finally the man went away, and one of his close disciples said, Lord Buddha, you know, excuse me, but that man, he was telling lies about you, that, he, was, uh, that he, he spoke badly of you and you hadn't done anything wrong. Why didn't you say something to him? And the Buddha said, and I paraphrase, of course, he said, if someone brings you a gift and you do not accept it, then what happens to that gift? And his disciple thought, and he said, why, Lord Buddha, he would have to take it back with him. And the Buddha said, just so. I've enjoyed answering questions. I'm looking forward to many more. Thank you, Rinpoche, for these wonderful teachings. I can't wait to do this again. It was so nice to have you here. Rinpoche, would you like to lead us in our traditional dedication prayer? 
May my capacity for compassion be infinite. I dedicate these efforts to complete and total enlightenment so that I may be of benefit to all sentient beings. May it be so. Blessings. If you enjoyed our very first episode and want to learn more about Domo Geshe Rinpoche and her organization, White Conch Dharma Center, check out our website at www.white-conch.org. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening. You can stay up to date on White Conch news and events at white-conch.org updates and can find all our social media links and blog posts as well as these podcast episodes at white-conch.org podcast. Thanks for listening and don't forget to check out the next episode as we continue our exploration of compassion.